So my aha moment was realizing, oh, this is beyond attention. This is beyond school, that this is how I eat food and how I spend money and how I sleep and how I plan activities and all of these other things that just made so much sense. And the aha moment was recognizing how ADHD really was connected to so many things. From the Understood Podcast Network, this is ADHD AHA, a podcast where people share the moment when it finally clicked that they, or someone they know, has ADHD. My name is Laura Key. I'm the editorial director here at Understood. And as someone who's had my own ADHD AHA moment, I'll be your host. I'm here today with Dr. Roberto Olivardia. He is a clinical psychologist in Massachusetts. He's also an understood expert and the host of season two of the Understood Explains podcast, which covers everything you need to know about ADHD diagnosis in adults, super relevant to the show. The show is all about ADHD aha moments, as you know, Roberto, and a lot of folks who are listening to the show may be wondering, should I get diagnosed for ADHD? So we'll talk more about season two of Understood Explains as we get further into the interview, but welcome. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, Laura. Always a pleasure to be talking about uh, things ADHD. (laughs) Well, let's get started. You were diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, right? That makes you an apt host for season two of Understood Explained. So why don't you start by telling our listeners when you were diagnosed with ADHD? So I was officially diagnosed at 35. However, when I realized myself that, oh, this is, this is it, like I have ADHD, was probably 30, 31, you know, and I tell people to keep in mind, I'm 50. And so when I was young, the kids that were diagnosed with ADHD were kids with pretty serious conduct disorders, probably a lot of undiagnosed learning disabilities, kids who might have had poor social skills, very hyperactive, impulsive. And even though I was hyperactive, I wasn't hyperactive in an antisocial way or an oppositional way. I was very mischievous, don't get me wrong, but within that sort of boundary, and I did well in school, even though I hated school. So I wasn't identified back then. So there was nothing throughout my life that ever had me see an affiliation with what we knew at that time about ADHD. Even in graduate school, in my late 20s, when we learned about it, which frankly wasn't a lot, and that's not an indictment on my particular program. I ask a lot of my colleagues this, how much did you learn about ADHD and your clinical psychology PhD program? And most people say very, very little. So it wasn't until I had patients when I started my private practice who I was treating for other issues like eating disorders and OCD and bipolar disorder, and they also happen to have ADHD. And so I'm like, oh, let me learn more about ADHD. And I would read about it. <laughs> and then it was it was one of those things that I'm reading about it and it was like slowly like, oh, I understand that. Oh, that makes sense to me. I, I relate to that. And it wasn't so much this like fireworks epiphany like it can be for some people and certainly a lot of patients who I diagnose with ADHD. It was this very just familiar sense of, oh, this is this is me. Oh, yeah, this makes sense. It was actually something that was very validating and I felt very good about which signs or stories were you relating to the most? Like which which angle of ADHD? Which flavor? 
Yeah, I think at first it was I, – I specifically remember I had a patient who had sleep apnea and he was struggling with depression. He had an eating disorder and he also had sleep apnea and he had ADHD. And I was reading about sleep apnea and I thought, oh, like I've had a lifetime of sleep issues. I mean, I was a sleepwalker, sleep talker, sleep paralysis. I do have very severe sleep apnea, night terrors, you name it. So when I would read about sleep apnea, and then when I would read about this connection with ADHD and sleep, and I thought, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. So that I remember was like the first angle was from that perspective. And then when I was reading from the executive function issues around procrastination, and a lot of times I think in the past, I would think, oh, people, and this is honestly how I think culturally people still solely see ADHD is the person that procrastinates and doesn't get it done. And certainly that does affect a lot of people with ADHD. But for the most part, at least with school, I was the one that always got it done. I would be up all night. I would literally, I mean, in college, running across campus to get the paper in my professor's mailbox by 5 p.m. I mean, it was that, but I would get it done. And so when I started reading that, like, oh, wait a minute, people with ADHD, they can procrastinate and pull it off. That was me. And then when I started sort of reading this more broad sense of impulsivity, it's like, okay, well, maybe I haven't had an issue with this, this, or that, but I always identified myself and knew intuitively. I have a very addictive personality that anything I like, I can like too much very quickly. And in some level, and I had friends growing up and people who had issues with that, and I related to it. I didn't see myself as that different from those individuals or even the individuals who might have had conduct disorders and issues. I hung out with a lot of those kids. I have a very mischievous side to me that when I was younger, kind of liked being a little bad, <laughs> being a little dangerous. <laughs> I'm going to ask you all about that. Don't you worry. <laughs> so, So when I read all of that, I thought, Oh, but honestly, so much, I don't think a lot of that was written about ADHD in right. the 80s, in the mid-90s. I mean, when we think about Ned Hallowell's book, Driven to Distraction, was written in, I think, 94, 95. And that's when adult ADHD was even talked about, which is kind thing. of yeah. nuts. Yeah, which is like, right. what did, where do people think this went? Like at 18, right. it just vanished? <laughs> Right. Suddenly your executive functioning issues, they won't be a problem in college or right. work, right? Or yeah. life, right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, okay, that's, so I, I was taking some notes. So number one, ADHD and sleep, which some folks may recognize Roberto's voice because we we actually published a bonus episode from In It where you were talking about ADHD and sleep mm-hmm. in the ADHD AHA feed, which was great. But I want to ask you a little bit more about that. The next thing you mentioned was procrastination, but still getting it done. So like, latching onto that urgency, it sounds like. Do you mind if we go back a little bit to ADHD sure. and sleep? Absolutely. What's a quick explanation of the connection between ADHD and sleep? I encourage folks to go back to our feed to listen to the full explanation, but I'm more curious about how they interact, but also how that played out in your life. Yeah. So there is a lot of research being done on ADHD and sleep. And I think, honestly, we only know the tip of the iceberg. We know that there are centers in the brain that are particularly in our frontal lobe that 
are activated or implicated with sleep. One of the best quotes I ever heard, and I don't, I wish I could credit it to because I don't know who said it, but it was actually the first ADHD conference I went to in 2008, which I speak at every year. And they said, for someone with ADHD, going to sleep is lying in a dark room waiting for nothing to happen. And that was, that, <laughs> that was totally, me last night. <laughs> that totally made sense because I thought it's so unstimulating and it's kind of boring. Like you're just waiting to, okay, when is this happening? Like, when am I going to? And then of course your mind is thinking about it, you know, too much. And it's so easy when there's no stimulation for an ADHD person to generate stimulation because we're so, we need that. Like our brain, we have this dopamine deficit. So we're always seeking stimulation. Mm -hmm. And with sleep, you're kind of, the job is to de-stimulate, which is really hard. And then there are these psychological components to it as well. I mean, the nighttime was also less distractions. No one's expecting anything of me in the nighttime. When I was in college and grad school, there was nothing to distract me. So I was in a better zone to work. And sometimes the nighttime was just the level of procrastination I would get through in the day. It was, okay, now it's a do or die situation kind of thing. So there's something about that, but it's not even just work. Sometimes it could just be, oh, I don't want to let go of the day until I've had my fun or my downtime. Now I'm very, very productive throughout the day. But years ago, it could be that I literally did nothing all day. I was just kind of wasting the day procrastinating. And then yet still have this sense of, oh, I want to make the most out of the day. Right. But meanwhile, this can't be it. Yeah. Th this can't be it. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot of that. But just also what we have to do as people with ADHD, particularly if you're more the hyperactive impulsive type, which I am, to just calm the body down, to be mindful, to even sleep cues, because people with ADHD are more externally oriented, which means like if there's fun to be had, well, I'm not tired. And sleep apnea, can you define that for our listeners and how it affects you? Yeah. So this is something which was a game changer. So when I was even a kid, I was this very short, skinny kid and my brother and I shared a room. And I remember when I was nine, he said to my mother, he's like, I don't know what Beto, my nickname is Beto in my family. Um, Beto, <laughs> he sounds like a drill. Like, I don't know how the sound is coming out of this small body, but oh. it is so loud, his snoring. And throughout my life, I couldn't never relate to someone who said I had a restful sleep. Like, I woke up and I felt restful. I never felt that way. And sure enough, the same patient I had mentioned earlier who had sleep apnea, I started reading about sleep apnea and I thought, hmm, I don't relate to some of these things, but these other parts... I really relate to, why not get a sleep study? Well, I got a sleep study. And so what sleep apnea is, is basically you're either having moments where you're not breathing at all, or your oxygen levels are very, very low. And now it can be due to anatomical features, deviated septum in the nose, enlarged tonsils, just the way that your throat passageway is as to how much air, neck size. So all of these different factors. And so I got this sleep study and I was told that you need an average of 20 events where you're not breathing or desaturated oxygen levels in a three-hour period of time to be diagnosed. So I got the sleep study. They told me it would take about five weeks to analyze all the data. They get back to me. And I said, okay, well, I'm free any Friday because I don't work on Fridays. I got a call 
a week later that said, oh, the, the sleep doctor has an opening. And I thought, what? I thought it was going to be take five weeks. They said, oh, no, she had an opening. Well, what they didn't tell me over the phone was they needed me in there ASAP because I had 98 events in an hour. Oh, my God. 98. Wow. She said, Roberto, let me tell you, I've been doing this for 30 years. The highest I had ever seen was someone at 68 events, and he was double your age, triple your weight. He smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. Like, this is really serious. So, thankfully, I'm pretty healthy guy overall because I was over 30 when I got the sleep study, and untreated sleep apnea at some point starts to cause cardiac damage to your heart mm-hmm. because your heart is working so hard to basically, it's almost like equivalent to someone putting a pillow over your face for oh, a second wow. or two, taking it away, putting a pillow over your face, taking it away. So she says, you have to have a CPAP for the rest of your life. And this is the part I hope the audience can really hear because I can't even tell you what an amazing thing this equipment is. I didn't like that I had to use this, but now I call him Pappy and me and Pappy are good ah. buddies because... <laughs> For the first time, when I the first night I used that CPAP, I woke up and I thought, oh my gosh, I feel rested. So you finally felt that experience of restful sleep around the time when you were starting to wonder if you, or to spot that you had ADHD, it sounds like. Right. I have a question. I wonder, and this has come up with a number of my guests, when they learn to cope with one thing in their life, that's when they really start to notice the ADHD symptoms, right? Because they get something out of the way, mm-hmm. right? Because I imagine that not having restful sleep probably was exasperating your trouble with focus or trouble with attention and hyper impulsivity, managing your executive functions. So was it that you were still struggling with those things, but you were you could see it more clearly? What I did notice was, like I think about in high school, if I was, it, it could take me, I don't know, two minutes. If I'm bored, I'd fall asleep. I'd either be the class clown or I was drooling down my face, literally. Now, it's funny, I still can fall asleep if I'm bored. Actually, tonight... A meeting with my accountant for tax time. <laughs> and I love my accountant. She's wonderful. But the last time we met, <laughs> oh, no. I, I was literally arm's length away from her. And she's talking about numbers in the spreadsheet and I'm just nodding off. But I notice it takes me longer for that to happen. That definitely improved. But it did make it clearer of looking at this idea of attention. And then, honestly, the parts of it that didn't change at all as far as my ADHD, you know, with the sleep issue being remedied. Right. That's what I mean. It seems like, I know you didn't cite this as your aha moment, but you were diving deeper and you were treating patients and noticing things in yourself. But it seems like this, like that getting the sleep issue is more under control was this moment of clarity and this potential oh, aha moment. Absolutely. That's really oh interesting. Yeah. And it's so common in people with ADHD. I wonder if that will resonate with any of our listeners. I think another part too, that's so, to me, is so beyond the diagnostic criteria is what I call the sensibility of people of of an ADHD experience. And that's the part that there are those aha kind of moments. Like, so with sleep, this idea of what we now is termed interoceptive awareness, which is the awareness of what's happening in our bodies, understanding how ADHD really can impact that. 
And I remember at 10 years old, I was at Chuck E. Cheese. My friend had a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. I love pizza. I love food in general, but I really love pizza. <laughs> and we ate a ton of pizza, and then we bouncing and doing arcades and all that. And then my friend's mom said, oh, guys, eat some of this pizza. I don't want to waste it because there was a lot left over. And one of the kids at the party said, oh, no, I'm full. And then I said, oh, you didn't like the pizza? And he said, no, I like the pizza. I'm just full. And I said, oh, you just didn't like this pizza? pizza? And he said, no, I, I like that pizza. I'm just, I'm not hungry. I said, oh, you didn't like the topping of it? I seriously did not understand how you like the pizza. It's in front of you and you're not eating it. What? what? Like, how uh. does that even, and realizing those kinds of moments, because to someone with ADHD, we like it. It's just there. Of course, I'm going to take it. I'm not going to tune in to my body. Like, I couldn't really tune in to even assess, am I hungry? Do I need that? Am I? It's like, no, me like pizza. I eat pizza. <laughs> just like when in college, a similar thing when someone was at a party that we were at and they said, oh, I'm going to go home. And I said, oh, are you tired? And they're like, no, I just, I just know I have to go to bed because I have to wake up early. And I thought, that's so weird. I don't know if I would have ever done that. Like, that means you have to get the signal that you're tired and that directs your behavior versus, oh, there's no more fun to be had, so now I'm tired. And it's those things that were the aha moments for me. The stuff that's beyond the DSM that you would see in the DSM statistical manual of psychiatric disorders, it's those kinds of things I'm like, Oh, and similar with the procrastination, like the why, like why is this such an issue? Oh, you're saying for a lot of people with ADHD, we joke that there are two time zones, the now and the not now zone. (laughs) I have never heard that before. That's great. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We we have a good sense of humor in the ADHD community. And that idea that if something is due a week from now, that's in the not now zone. I'm not looking at it. I'm not even thinking about it. And then as the not now becomes the now, then boom, either one of two things happen. People either completely shut down. It's almost like a power fuse blown. Or in my case, it would be like someone just ignited adrenaline in me. And then I would, that's all I could think about. And I would get it done. But I couldn't understand why can't I feel this way two days before it's due? Because I never liked it. Friends of mine would comment and say, oh, that's so awesome. You can write 20-page paper overnight. I wish I could do that. I'm thinking, no, like this isn't something I feel great about. I am so tired at the end. And then it would take me days to recover, of which I'm then missing other stuff. And it, like it's just this catch-up. And then I get sick. But I, I couldn't understand it because I would say, this is the last time I'm going to wait till the last minute. The la-, And then it, it wouldn't be. It would just happen over and over. Those are the aha moments when I had that scientific understanding of ADHD that I can't even tell you how validating. It still is when I read research that still comes out today that's like, oh, yes, yes. It's it's just, it's an evolution of those moments. What you were just talking about actually helped me better understand one of our former guests. Her name is Ange. And she talked about one thing that tipped her off to her ADHD. She saw this infographic of potential signs of ADHD. And one of them was forgetting to go to the bathroom. And even mm-hmm. I was like, how do you forget to go to the bathroom? But the way that you just described it, it makes a lot of sense. I can completely relate to Ange because I've had those moments where I'm, and it's funny because we know ADHD is genetic. And so when I was a kid, my mom would routinely say, Beto, like go to the bathroom. And I'm like, I don't have to go to the bathroom. And meanwhile, she would tell me my legs were like twisted in a pretzel. Like it was so obvious that I'm holding something. And she's like, go. And, but I was so into whatever I was into. And 
FOMO, right, the FOMO and just the stimulation that whatever that situation would be. Fast forward years later, I have a son who's now going to be 18. He has ADHD. And when he was a kid, legs in a pretzel. And I'm like, buddy, like, why don't we just quickly go to the bathroom? He's like, no, I don't have to go to the bathroom. I'm like, yeah, why don't we go to the bathroom? And then we would go. And then he'd go, and he'd go, oh, my God. And he would feel so much relief after going. He didn't realize it. And I'm thinking, I get it. And we would have conversations about that, you know, and certainly as he got older to understand how that is. Because to someone else, it's like, what is, that's so silly. How do you forget? How do you not know that? But those are the things that I love sharing because that's what can meet somebody to be like, oh, that I relate to. I want to hear more about little Beto, the mischievous <laughs> kid. I want to hear more about the mischievous and uh, what were some of the other words you used to describe yourself? How did your parents perceive you? What was happening at school? Tell me about yourself as a kid. In general, I love humor. And my rule was anything is good for a laugh as long as you're not hurting anybody's feelings. Like as long as you're not hurting anyone or hurting their feeling for a laugh. So I, my brother will tell you, I lacked the embarrassment gene when I was growing up. He wished I had a little bit more of that. I'm the youngest of three kids. So my brother is six and a half years older. My sister is five years older. You know, I joke because my my siblings will say I had different parents than they did because my parents were tired by the time <laughs> and they Same were older and I was definitely the one that gave them the biggest run and I remember the first time I heard the word shenanigans when I was in third grade and I loved that word it just sounds like what it is I mean it's just shenanigans and I remember thinking that's like a cute way of saying like I like a little badness you know like I don't know there's just something about not conforming to how everything's supposed to be that's just I I don't know I can't I still can't explain it but it's so appealing to me like mm -hmm. when I I was a high school student that when I discovered like punk rock was like oh my yeah. god this noise and this is so discordant and offensive and loud I love it but I was also yeah like my friends and I would just do things that were kind of dangerous. I mean, I remember this hill in the town I grew up in. It was this really, really steep hill. And it was a one-way street, but strangely, it was one way going up as opposed to the cars going down. And the only thing that separated this hill from the highway in Boston was this rickety fence, which is crazy. I mean, now they have a more sturdy fence. And we used to sled down this hill and someone would go be at the bottom of the hill and they'd yell, car, if a car was coming up. <laughs> And we just steer away and bang into this rickety fence that I'm not uh, literally easily the fence could have given way and we would have ended up on the highway. And we thought, oh, this is like fun. Like it was just stimulating. Like yeah, that just seeking out that stimulation, that danger. right? Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Practical jokes, you know, and things like that. And then there were the kind of things that I really um, – like I, I got kicked out of Sunday school because – I questioned sort of things that were sort of told, like, you have to think this way. I mean, my brother, who's a very good um, Catholic, um, he never broke a rule in his life. And we're very close. I mean, we're very different people, though. Um, this priest, after he kicked me out, he sought my brother out. And he said, I just want to let you know, your brother contributes to the death of the Catholic Church. <laughs> and when my brother told <laughs> me that, I now I'm like four, 13, 14, I said, did he say that? And he said, yeah. I'm like, that is 
awesome. I'm like, I want, I want that on a T-shirt. Can he actually write that on a T-shirt? Oh my but gosh. yeah, like even, you know, when I would was old enough to go to those kind of punk shows where you're thrown around and everything, that was all like fun and stimulating. Like one of my mottos, like, well, whatever happens, it'll be a story. Whatever yeah. happens, it'll be sort of part of our life story. And so yeah. I had very little of that risk Adversity. (laughs) Risk aversion. Yeah. Well, it sounds like everything you're saying is very tied up in impulsivity and the seeking out of stimulation. I wonder, did you ever in school, if you were acting like the class clown, was it ever to cover up for any challenges that maybe you weren't aware of, but you could feel? Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, it was was just brutal. I mean, high school, especially 10th grade was probably the worst. I just couldn't focus. It was so painful. I actually have all of my report cards, and it's so interesting looking back because it's th- it's there. I mean, Roberto can be super bright but doesn't always live up to his potential. His biggest mistakes are in being careless and being impulsive. Roberto's handwriting is incredibly difficult to read because he writes so fast. I think I was a bit dysgraphic, though, as well, Mm. on top of that. But definitely, I mean, my writing, I almost don't have the patience to write neatly. I'm just like, you know, let's just get it out. But And then there'd be this inconsistency. The thing that comes to mind, seventh grade, where you have a different teacher for a different class, and my parents came home from a PTA meeting, and I said, how was it? And they said, well... We feel like they're talking about five different kids. Like your math teacher said you're a bit of a wise guy and you you can't stop talking. Like you're constantly talking. And even though she tells you to not talk, you just are a little bit combative, which I was. It wasn't like I was an angel either. When I said I wasn't, I didn't have a conduct disorder, it means, you know, on that level, but it doesn't mean I didn't butt heads, you know, with some mm-hmm. teachers and was a bit of an instigator sometimes. My history teacher wondered whether I had some medical issue because I was asleep all the time in that class. And then the bell would ring and I'd be like, like talking to my friends, like full of energy. And he didn't understand that. My English teacher said, if every student could be like Roberto, my day would be awesome. He is a star student. He (laughs) participates because she was not only incredibly engaging, but we're talking. It's like seminar style. It's not lecture. And she had the desks in a circle. Ooh, interesting. Isn't that like what's so significant is as a kid, you walk in a room and the desks are in a circle. It means, oh, we're all interacting with each other here. And then I had another teacher who wondered (laughs) whether I had some urinary issue because I had to go, quote unquote, (laughs) had to go to the bathroom all the time. (laughs) I've heard that a bunch of times on this show. I just be roaming. I mean, that was my way of just managing. I mean, I have two kids in high school. My son's a senior. My daughter's a sophomore. And I'm amazed if they say, oh, I had a good day in school. And they both ADHD and dyslexic. And I'm like, really? Like, what? Huh? Like, I used to write dismissal notes and forge my mom's signature and just give myself like my own mental health days. And I'd go into Harvard Square, which was near Harvard University. But at this time in the 80s, it was like the punk mecca, like where all the Mm. punk kids would hang out. And all the kids that were skipping school would hang out with their mohawks and green hair and everything. And I'm like, those are my people. I did that a lot. I mean, and I I admitted it to my parents years later. After I got my PhD, I admitted it to them. (laughs) You're like, I turned out fine. Yeah. Yeah, I turned out okay. And it's not that I 
recommend this for any high school students who might be listening to this, but honestly, it was a way to manage. Like if I knew I was going to give myself Wednesday, I remember it was a popular day. I would give myself one of those days just to manage Monday and Tuesday were so much easier knowing, okay, Wednesday, I'm going to be off and I'm going to skip that day. And, but, and this is where that responsibility piece came in. I would coordinate with friends of mine getting the homework and everything. So I would still play up like my end of the bargain. And I think that was the difference. Whereas some of the kids who I'd hang out with on those days, they weren't doing that. And then they were getting Fs and they were failing and they didn't care that they were failing. For me, anything below a C was a no-no. But I was not a straight-A student. I was not a perfectionist. I really didn't care. I would be late, make up excuses. And it was really all to manage just the utter boredom that I would feel and the difficulty of just attending to these seven-hour days. And even now, just thinking about it, I mean, I have a visceral a visceral feeling to it. You say you're surprised by your kids having, I think you said, a good day. I imagine that that has something to do with your self-awareness and your profession and your, like, they probably have learned how to cope and what they're struggling with, obviously, way earlier than then you had the luxury of... Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, well, one, I mean, what's great is that I think schools still have a ways to go, in my opinion, but there's definitely come a long way in terms of being more attuned to those, just even the needs that not everyone learns the same. Just even that, I mean, let alone, you know, ADHD and, and those things. But from day one, there's just a family vocabulary around ADHD. And it's not that they don't have days that they're bored, but these are ways that you manage it. I'm curious, Roberta, when you got diagnosed, who diagnoses the diagnostician? Who did you go see? <laughs> yeah. And what was that conversation like? It was a psychologist who specializes in, in ADHD. And it was interesting because I went, you know, I told him what I did. He, I think he was actually familiar with me in, in the community. And I said, this is something I've done a lot of reading, but I just feel it's important to just have it official. Like I honestly could have diagnosed myself from my own standpoint, but I said, I just want to make it official so that for, you know, my my kids, my family, for my patients, like if I'm going to talk about this, I don't want to say, oh yeah, I, I just diagnosed myself. And it was it was pretty evident. How has getting diagnosed with ADHD officially or even just recognizing symptoms in yourself changed how you interact with patients, if at all? I would say the main thing is with patients with ADHD is just sharing my story with them because First and foremost, and this is my whole life, really, I'm a very empathic person. I was always a very emotionally sensitive kid, which that also can go along with ADHD, the sort of emotional sensitivity. And it physically pains me when someone feels less than in any way. And so trying to share with people that they're not less than, that they are different, but different doesn't mean bad and less than. And to validate, it is harder sometimes, absolutely, I would say that's probably the biggest part in terms of how that's kind of played. Because my my style, I would say, has been fairly consistent ever since I started doing therapy and practicing and even in my training. I did find, interestingly, when I started in my clinical training, I remember we would audio tape our sessions and then my supervisor would hear the audio tape sessions, give feedback. And I had two wonderful supervisors and they both said identical things. They said, it's clear that you are communicating your empathy really well. You have a knowledge of 
the theory and the skills, but there are two things. You don't allow for enough silences in the room when you ask a question, and if there's a silence, you kind of fill it. And it, and it, both of them said it's clear that you're almost trying to rescue the person, but you don't have to rescue them. Sometimes people just need time to process, mm. and you talk really fast and in a way that <laughs> It's clear you're enthusiastic, but understanding that some people, especially if they're depressed, that energy could be very intense. So that's where I realized it's moments like that, that now if I understood ADHD at that point, I would have been like, oh, this is what it is. It's that how do I ground myself mindfully? It would have been helpful to have that as like a theoretical model to understand all these disparate things. I love the the quickness of how you speak. I've heard anecdotally only that a lot of people with ADHD, and I'm speaking now about the Understood Explained season two, they like to listen to fast-paced podcasts to, to get through them quickly. Yeah. Now, that's not true of everybody. Some people like to slow it down and take their time with it, but that's going to be really exciting for people to listen to. I loved that whole process uh, working with Understood and doing that. And even in that process... I'd have to do a couple takes because they would say, okay, you need to slow it down a little bit. And it's that when I'm enthusiastic about something, it's like, blah, 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 blah. like the speed just could like, whoa. and so they would give me that feedback. And I think that's the other piece. If somebody doesn't understand that and they're told that and they're like, what do you mean? And that they can get very either defensive about or, or whatnot as opposed to, oh yeah, yeah, no, I have ADHD. And that means that sometimes things are a little bit revved up that way. I just need to, you know, take a deep breath, slow it down. So it was great. No, I'm, I'm excited for the public to hear that. I feel really good about that project. Well, Dr. Roberto Olivardia, thank you so much for being here today. It's been a pleasure. It's been great getting to know you on more of a just person level in addition to all the great things I've learned from you as an understood expert. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. You've been listening to ADHD AHA from the Understood Podcast Network. If you want to share your own AHA moment, email us at ADHDAHA at understood.org. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to learn more about the topics we covered today, check out the show notes for this episode. We include more resources as well as links to anything we mentioned in the episode. Understood is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people who learn and think differently discover their potential and thrive. We have no affiliation with pharmaceutical companies. Learn more at understood.org slash mission. ADHD AHA is produced by Jessamine Molly. Say hi, Jessamine. Hi, everyone. Brianna Berry is our production director. Our theme music was written by Justin D. Wright, who also mixes the show. For the Understood Podcast Network, Scott Koshira is our creative director. Seth Melnick is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Laura Key. Thanks so much for listening. Listening.